Thank you, Lord. Of your government and peace, there will always be increase. We're so grateful for that today. We're grateful that we can be in your kingdom. We can be about your business. We can be with you and we want to say that we love you, God. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for drawing our hearts to you. Without you drawing us, Lord, we've never been able to come. So we say we're grateful. We ask today you'd speak to us as we hear your word and you'd transform our lives. That we really would conform, not to the world's image, but to that image of Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd help us to focus, to learn, and to grow in the way you'd have us to. And to leave this place with great joy and anticipation for all that you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, band. Appreciate you leading us out. Good morning, community of faith. Good to see you all today. Uh, I wanted to make an announcement that uh, uh, Matt and Jenna, uh, who are uh, members here, uh, are married. I performed their wedding last night. Yes, last night. I woke up this morning in New Jersey. And yay, barely I'm here today. At, uh, I woke up at 5 a.m. and started the drive up. I had a good time, put on some music and prayed. And But uh, we have a bit of our crew down there fellowshipping with them. But uh, man, uh, uh, Jenna and Matt Stankus, they're a great couple. And Matt is, uh, Matt looked, uh, Jenna looked absolutely beautiful. Matt was was okay. Uh, no, he did great. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled for their future. They're committed to being here with us and helping things to to grow in Jesus. So anyway, just wanted to give you a greeting from that. I love that part of the the work that God's given me to do, to be able to marry people. I see a few people out here that I've been able to perform weddings. Yours was cold, though. Uh, I was a little cold on the beach, but it was nice. Uh, Rob and Emily, Surratt. Um, you enjoying this weather? It's funny how we are, fickle as people, aren't we, that uh, it can be too hot so soon after being so cold for so long, but uh, I'm grateful for the warmth, and I hope you are too, and you're taking advantage of getting out of there. My name is Jeff Bianchi. For those who may not know, I'm the lead pastor here at Community of Faith, and I want to welcome you. Just say what a joy it is to have you here today. We're, uh, uh, we are in the uh, sixth week of our series called... Rebuilding the Walls, a series about Nehemiah, and uh, anybody enjoyed that thus far? You had a good time? We learned a little bit about that. We talked, oh, you're clapping, wow, that's impressive. Many times, you know, uh, I've said this time and time again, but if you're catching it the first time here, I just want to explain, many times in the Christian life, when we discuss walls, we're talking about things that aren't positive. We're talking about walls of separation between God and man. That which happened at the Garden of Eden when Adam and in sin. We're talking about walls of separation between male and female, between young and old, between rich and poor, between uh, one race and another race. Those are not good walls, and we're tearing those walls down, so to speak. We're also, it's, we're not talking today about walls of privacy, those things that we build up around ourselves where we're guarded and we only show the public side of who we are, but no one really knows who we are on the inside. That's not the kind of wall we're talking about today. We're against walls of separation, walls of division, 
walls of isolation, those, those of course. But what we're talking about today, in, when we're talking about uh, the book of Nehemiah, is building walls in such a way, a spiritual foundation and a spiritual house, building walls so that we can be a safe place for people to come in and accept of God's grace and goodness and love. And so when we're talking about that, we're believing that, that every brick that we lay in the wall uh, spiritually, that as Jesus is the chief cornerstone and we're being built together as a house, as a safe place for others to come in, every wall, uh, every brick that's being laid is uh, bringing more freedom, more life, and more encouragement for others. In Nehemiah, we're seeing uh, what actions we can take as a church to see those spiritual walls rebuilt. And uh, we're going to look today at Nehemiah and uh, chapter 5. Uh, the thing we're going to do today is look, we're at, let me give you a little bit of perspective, we're at the halfway point. They've rebuilt the wall halfway. Nehemiah has returned to Jerusalem. Uh, he was in, uh, he, he was in uh, the uh, Babylonian kingdom under the king of Persia where the Israelites had been exiled. He'd returned and he'd inspired the group of Israelites to rebuild the wall, uh, which was great. And they encountered some opposition as we talked about the last couple of weeks. But they'd rebuilt the wall to half of its height. But we see here something that's vitally important if we as believers, we as the church, are going to see walls, spiritual walls built for our city to come to know the protection, provision, and love of God. An issue that's dealt with today is that of generosity. The walls cannot continue to be built unless the issue of generosity is dealt with. Let's look now at Nehemiah chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5. It says here, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against the fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews... And, through, uh, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. First thing that we need to look at today as we look at Nehemiah chapter 5 is that in order for the holy and healthy spiritual walls to be rebuilt, right, is being built in the natural here around the city of Jerusalem thousands of years ago. But if we as the church now, people of God, are rebuilding those, there's a very important thing we must know, is that in order for these walls of protection and provision for the sake of others to be rebuilt, socioeconomic walls must be torn down. Let's look at that. The problem we see here in Nehemiah chapter 5 is a socioeconomic problem. It's a problem of the haves and the have-nots. And there's, uh, the, the problem's been um, exacerbated. It's been made worse by a famine that has occurred in the land and also, to some degree, by a tax that's being demanded of the people. Right? Whenever things get bad, the existing issues tend to come to the surface, and this is what's happening here. But um, the, the real problem was occurring because of the greed 
between brothers and sisters, between fellow Jews. The Jews, the, the Jews that had were holding back from the Jews that had not. They were charging them excessive interest, and it was unpleasing to God, and, and we'll see unpleasing to Nehemiah. When we're talking about the church, we've got to realize this. If we're going to see things, and we're going to see a lot happen in our city and, and our nations, but if we're going to see this happen, we've got to be honest about dealing with socioeconomic walls, the walls between those who have and those who have not. We need to actually start looking at it through new lenses, and we'll talk about that in a second. You know, we're not talking here about socialism. We're not talking about capitalism. We're talking about Godism. <laughs> We're talking about God's economy. You see, socialism, or let's say capitalism, is, is not a perfect economy. I grew up as a capitalist, so <laughs> I think most of you did too. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it was, anyway, it's kind of funny. But uh, I grew up in a capitalist society, and uh, uh, so I really, there was value on um, people, uh, uh, you know, m making making money or, or making their own way in society, and, and if, if the opportunities are there for you. But capitalism is not an ideal society, because there are some that have and some that ultimately have not. But I'm here to tell you something else. Socialism is not an ideal society. Communism was not an ideal society. Basically, the goal of communism, when they took Karl Marx's uh, theory, uh, the goal of it was to bring everybody to the same place. But actually, what ended up happening was you had haves and you had have-nots. There were haves, people that had and people that didn't have, and everybody ended up going to a lower standard. You see, communism didn't answer it. Capitalism is not going to answer it. Socialism is not going to answer it. Whatever ism you have is not going to answer it if it's not very much thick with the presence of God. You see, when God is there, then economies are taken care of. And why? You look at any economy anywhere where greed is in the heart of men and women, there's a brokenness. You know, and I spent time in Russia in the 1990s, at the beginning of the 1990s, and I saw a bit of a society that ultimately had its goal uh, as equality for all. But because we're men and women, it didn't work. And I could take you to the city of Detroit right now or to some other places in the United States, and you could see that capitalism has its faults. But we are looking to the Lord God Almighty. We have to have a system. But the church and the people of God have a system that goes way beyond anything that this world could offer. In God's economy, there are some that have more, and there are some that have less. But here's the thing I would like to say to you today. There should never be haves and have-nots in the kingdom of God. You know what there should be? There should be that everyone should be able to say, I have enough. And I'm thankful for it. I have enough. And I'm thankful for it. But let's look on here. So the first thing is that socioeconomic walls have to be broken down. Extreme excess and extreme need between brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking together should not exist. There ultimately should be a place where all are provided for and cared for in Jesus. 
where everyone is not trying to bring everyone to the same level, but the spirit of generosity is coming at such a level that all needs are met and everyone has great joy in God. And I really believe that's going to happen more and more in our church and in our city. 2 Corinthians, if we want to look at it, as we've been looking here in Nehemiah, the Old Testament, Israel, the people of God, the New Testament, the church, God, it, um, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews together under Christ. This is what we see. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12 through 15, when Paul is speaking to an audience that is uh, the church. In Corinth, and he says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply their need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. I want to propose something to us, a little quote that came to my heart and my mind this week, and I want you to think about this. There is always enough supply in a given community, or in a given nation, okay? Uh, we might have to expand the community because some communities... May not, but there's a given supply in any community of people. The question is not whether there's enough supply. The question is, is there enough love in the community? Because if there's love in the community, then things get exactly where they need to get, when they need to get there. Love, see, greed is an antithesis to love. I must have more. I must save for me. But God says, turn that all on its head. It's the upside down kingdom. Where giving is better than receiving. And where loving is with cost, but with great joy. So the question here is not whether we have enough in a society. The question is not whether Boston has enough. <laughs> the question is, will love permeate our city in such a way that every need is met through the body of Christ and through the larger uh, society. Now, I'm not saying Jesus said to his disciples, I want to make clear to you, when, uh, uh, when actually Judas, who had his hand in the purse, so to speak, I guess it was a man purse. <coughs> you can laugh. I thought that was funny. Judas had a man purse and he kept all the money for the disciples in it. And he had his hand in it. That's what they're saying. Right? He kept the money. And, and, uh, Jesus, uh, well, anyway, he stole. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> when uh, when Judas got upset because someone was being generous, the woman who came in with the alabaster jar broke it and poured it out at the feet of Jesus. And Judas said, hey, that could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. You will not always have me. We don't make... And the reality is, I'm not saying we're going to always eradicate every bit of the poor that there ever are. Jesus said we would always have the poor with us. But I can tell you this, Jesus wants the poor to hear the good news and to be blessed and to be 
filled with His grace and His goodness. I'm not talking about a perfect society on this earth because that society where there is no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things that passed away is in the future. But we can see a hint. We can see great shadows which, which blossom and show us what heaven, on, heaven really is going to be like even in our earth. So Judas tried to look spiritual and a lot of our giving can be looking spiritual or being religious or making it look like a good thing, but having another motive. But Jesus is saying here, you pour out your life to me. If you encounter me, you will ultimately take care of the poor much better than you would by trying your own way. So the first part, part we've talked about is that socioeconomic walls have to be torn down in order for the walls to be rebuilt. And uh, spiritual walls of protection and provision for our city. Let's look again here at Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. When I heard their outcry, Nehemiah speaking here, and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord, walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the charging of interest stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses, and the interest you're charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So we see that the walls socioeconomically have to be torn down in order for uh, the true spiritual walls to be built. But the next thing we have to understand is in order for these socioeconomic walls to be torn down, the fear of the Lord is mandatory. We must have the fear of the Lord. We don't necessarily talk about it so much in our day. Um, we, we, uh, we, we need to. Because the fear of the Lord is actually a beautiful thing. It's not something that is uh, portraying God as less than, but it makes us love God more and, and be encouraged. Nehemiah called out the nobles and the officials of the Jews for treating their countrymen with contempt. He's calling them out on it. He's saying, listen guys, these are your brothers, these are your sisters, and you're treating them with contempt. They don't have opportunity and you're taking advantage of them. This is what the religious people of Jesus' day were doing. He said that to the Pharisees. It's, he said to the Pharisees, the religious crowd, he said, You, for a show, make lengthy prayers. And you also devour widows' houses. Religion's not going to do it. It's a, it's a pure out love for Jesus and a fear of God. That we would not want to uh, uh, do anything that would uh, displease him in that matter. What is the fear of the Lord? There's, uh, it's, a, it's a probably longer teaching, but I'll give you a few uh, of the definitions from the Bible, a couple of those for you today. The fear of the Lord is described scripturally. One of the ways it's described is to hate evil. That's what the fear of the Lord is. If you, if you love, <laughs> the, the old man in our flesh does love evil at times. But if you find yourself drawn to 
sinful, evil, and your desires are ruling and reigning in you, you can just put your finger up there. It's like, you know, it's like on your uh, dashboard, the monitors. You're, you're lacking, you're low on what's called the fear of the Lord. If you're loving evil. You see, we don't sin because, because we have to. Sometimes, if we've gotten enslaved to sin... As, as we do, but we don't often do things that we don't want to do. We do it because we want it. But the fear of the Lord causes us to hate that which is evil and to love that which is good. And in this situation, um, uh, why uh, we have to determine why is it so evil to have greed? Why is it evil to have greed? Well, one of the things we could look at here is because God, our God in heaven, is so generous. He is such an incredibly generous God and He has been so incredibly generous to us. Everything that we have is a gift from Him. Everything that we have is a true gift. Uh, you might ask, how is God generous? He gave us breath in our lungs. Breathe in and out right now. That's a gift from God right there. That's, uh, if you want to look it up, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. He... Breathe the breath of life into Adam and into Eve. He gave us the ability to produce wealth. You say, well, I'm pretty good at work. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 18 says, He gives us that ability. So who are you and I to squander it and spend it all upon ourselves? You see, God always has this principle that He blesses in order to be a blessing. He blesses you so that you can bless. So that the, the train of God's goodness can continue going. Right? Pay it forward is a nice idea, you know. But the reason it's a nice idea is it's based on a principle of God, which is that we give and it keeps on. That the, that the reverberations of God's grace and goodness. Jesus gave His life on the cross for us and therefore we can give of ourselves for the sake of others. God gave us everything. We also, so the first thing that we look at in the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Another thing about fear of the Lord is an awe of God. Fear defined as an awe or a reverence of God, right? Like, uh, to a small extent, I would, I, I stood a bit in awe of my dad. I did not want to cross him when I was growing up, right? Um, he was, he, he was a work in progress. In his attitude, um, and he's grown immensely in it, so there was some anger mixed in there. But in reality, I didn't want to cross him. I stood in awe of him. I wouldn't mess around with him. When he said something, I didn't mess around. And that's what a fear, a healthy fear of God is, knowing his love and his compassion, that I'm not messing around with God. I'm not fooling God. I can say or make anything look like it is, but the eyes of the Lord look straight through to my heart. They see the motives of my very heart. You know, having awe is a very important thing. That's one of the reasons it's so important that we praise Jesus today. As I was driving, I was praising God. I was playing music and praising God, and I stood in awe of God, in awe of His goodness. And every day I look at Him in the Scripture and in prayer, and as I stay in awe of Him, it, it deals greed a death blow in my life. It's very interesting that wherever God has come down, wherever awe is mentioned in the Scriptures, A-W-E, awe, wherever that awe is mentioned in Scripture, there's no need. <laughs> wherever people have awe of God, 
Well, let's look at it. Acts chapter 2. You don't need to go all the way there, but Acts chapter 2. The Spirit of God comes down on the disciples right after Jesus has risen from the dead. I mean, they're excited about God. 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus and and uh, they they formed them. That's a miracle of itself, how they took care of 3,000 people when there were 120 of them. But anyway, they were meeting together in households. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They broke bread together in the homes and, and all of this. But it says there was a sense of awe. And guess what? It also says there were no needy persons among them. This happened again in Acts chapter 4. God came down. There was an awe in the presence of God. And then guess what? In, in Acts chapter 5, they were selling their... their, their um, uh, Acts chapter 4 going into Acts 5. They were selling their fields as any had need and taking care of one another. Where we have an awe, where we have a fear of God, needs are met. So we understand here that... We have to break down the walls, or God needs to break down the walls, socioeconomic divide. But we also have to have the fear of the Lord in that. Our goal is to have an awe in the presence of our God, not to have everyone have the exact same income. It's for everyone to be in awe of God and to love one another with full hearts so that every need is provided for. I want to say that quote again to you, that everyone would be able to say, I have enough. And I am thankful for it. Let's continue by looking at Nehemiah chapter 5. And it says here in verse 12 and 13. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of the house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and empty. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. You know, after the officials were rebuked and challenged by Nehemiah, it was really the leaders who were being challenged in that. They responded with generosity. Nehemiah knew that he had a responsibility to speak honestly. We don't have a responsibility to judge one another. God is the only judge. But we have a responsibility to ask questions of one another and say, is what I'm doing in my life promoting the good of the community or is it promoting my own safety, my own welfare above the good and the needs of the community? You know, he spoke straightforward about the area of stewardship. You know, I've heard people say there's all kinds of different things, but we have to speak straightforward in these. I'm studying. I'm getting a real good job because I am called to make a lot of money and give it to people. I've heard that one a lot of times in the last 25 years, and it's been true to some degree. And I, there's been very many generous people who make a lot of money in here, or who make money. <laughs> I don't know exactly what you make. But there are many generous people. But I want to read something to you because... This idea <laughs> doesn't always hold water. An illustration, this, well, from the article entitled America's Generosity Divide by Emily Gipple and Ben Goes. It says the rich, listen to this, the rich aren't the most generous. Middle class Americans give a far bigger share of their discretionary income to charities than the rich. Households that earn fifty to seventy-five thousand give an average of seven point six percent of their discretionary income to charity. 
compared with an average of 4.2% for those who make 100000 or more. In the Washington metropolitan area, for example, low- and middle-income communities like Suitland, Maryland, and Capitol Heights, Maryland, donate a much bigger share of discretionary income than do wealthier communities like Bethesda, Maryland, and McLean, Virginia. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we think, I, I want to make more so I can give more. But oftentimes, it doesn't work that way. Oftentimes, it begins to grip into our own hearts. Is our goal for everyone to have a, a minimum income, <laughs> minimum wage job? No, that's not our goal. I rejoice if someone has been given a lot of riches, if they're using them for God's glory. But we have to realize with greed that it just takes a hold of you. And, and you don't have to be poor. Or you don't have to be rich to be held by greed. <laughs> rich does not, uh, greed does not uh, uh, take um, uh, favorites. But it is harder the more that we have. Wouldn't we think we have more, we're able to give more. But the more we have, the more we hold. God wants to break that. He wants to break that. This is interesting too. The 1% really are different. Rich people, listen, listen to this. This is so interesting. Rich people who live in neighborhoods with many other wealthy people, okay? Rich people in a rich people neighborhood, right? They give a smaller share of their incomes to charity than rich people who live in a more economically diverse area. Isn't that interesting? When we're always flying out, we want to live in the place where it's more comfortable. But it tends to yield toward inertia rather than power and strength. Now, to me, that speaks, we want to be a diverse people, full of faith in God, compassionately reaching the world around it. We want to be able to have those who have high income, low income, any income. But every person here is saying, I have enough and I'm thankful for it. Because God is providing my needs. You know what? I'll tell you this too. I am not a rich man. In the eyes of the world, I'm richer than most. So I don't want to make an excuse there. Living in this city, uh, whatever we have is, is, is considered pretty high. But um, you know what? The rich need, the rich need the poor. The rich need the poor. I tell you, I've been to 40 different countries around this world. I have preached the gospel in these countries, and I have sat in places. I've sat in a gear in Mongolia, which is their circular tent with the whole family under one little area with a little stove in the middle, and I've seen more faith than I could ever have seen. Or I'd ever seen in a, in a rich and confined area. I have spent time in Siberia with a widow who had... Very little in her house, just a little, a little cup of tea she shared with me, but the joy and the praise and the love of God I learned. You see, the, the poor need the rich, but the rich need the poor. You see, because we supply what each other need. And I can guarantee you this, if you're rich in this room, and probably by a lot of determinations, you're close. <laughs> uh, if you're, well, no, a lot of you students, and that's not really rich, but. You need to mix your life with all sorts and all types. And that's what we want to do here. I want to have a place here. Can I dream a little? I want to have a place here at Community of Faith where a wealthy person can come in and feel completely welcomed and encouraged and loved. Not fawned over, but loved, encouraged, respected, 
but where a very poor person could come in and feel the exact same respect and love. Where every person in this room, black, white, yellow, green, purple, I know those aren't some of the colors of humanity, but whatever color <laughs> you are that you come in, I believe that we're here not to say forget the rich, not to say forget the poor, but to say we're going to live under Christ Jesus, unlike any society would do. We, we're going to live under Christ Jesus. I want it to be a place where the poor are honored. I want it to be a place where the rich are honored. And we don't talk about whether they're poor or rich. We talk about Jesus and we're grateful for who He is and what He's about. I don't want to fawn, or if that word you can understand, I don't want to give myself, I, you know, I would love to have a New England Patriot or a Boston Red Sox person, uh, player come to this church. But I'd be just as happy <laughs> with anybody else in this community coming. I'm fired up to have people of all kinds of influence, but I want everyone to come, and I want us to be a place where, people, where the world sits back and watches and says, Wow! That's what it looks like when God is alive in a community. I was worshiping to a song this morning, and I love the way uh, that it went, and I might mess it up, but I'm going to do it here. It really touched me, and I got a picture of what God wants to do with us as a community. It said, as they were worshiping the Lord, it was kind of a spontaneous song of worship, and the lady, Kim Walker, was singing, and she said, um, okay, I might mess it up the first time, but I'm going to do it. <clears throat> This is what it sounds like when you sing heaven's song. This is what it feels like when God heaven comes down. This is what it looks like when God is all around. Let it come. I want you to sing it with me. This is what it looks I, I'm sorry. <laughs> so this is what it sounds like to sing heaven's song. This is what it looks like down. This is what it feels like when God is all around. Let it come. That's what I want. I want us to worship God with such open hearts where we say this is what it looks like. When we sing heaven's song, this is what it looks like when heaven comes down to earth. This is what it looks like when God is all around. When there's a group of people that are in love with Jesus with all their hearts, souls, minds, and strength. And everyone says, I have enough and I'm thankful. I want to close here with the last part. Nehemiah chapter 5, 14 through 19. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence, remember that word, reverence, fear for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials sat at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. We as the church, those who are leaders, and I believe the church is a leader 
in society. When we abdicate our leadership as the church, society goes the way of all the earth. Society degrades. But if we take our place of leadership and humility and joy and love, then we must lead in the area of extravagant generosity. Nehemiah led that way in extravagant generosity. He didn't ask others to do what he wasn't willing to do himself. And Nehemiah didn't increase his standard of living. He increased his standard of giving. We must be a church willing to rally to each other's causes for their good and God's glory. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6-12, it speaks about that. Where we are enriched in every way so that we meet needs. And then it causes many expressions of thankfulness to God. You know, when we practice generosity among ourselves as a faith community, we're ever increasingly able to meet the needs of the, of the world around us. And uh, uh, I want to give one illustration as I close. There was a couple I knew really well at Antioch uh, in Waco. Uh, this, this couple was a wonderful couple. They'd gone uh, to, um, through the training school. They'd gone through college and then through the discipleship training school. And they were on a team going to Europe. And they uh, had school debt. Anybody ever heard of that? <clears throat> they had school debt. And one day, uh, the pastor uh, was teaching on the area of stewardship, finances, and giving. And as he spoke on this, uh, um, at the very end of the service, he just asked people to, um, to pray and to check their hearts on what God was saying. And these, this couple uh, were sitting at the front. And a person came straight up to them at the end of the service and said, I want you to know that the night, asked them, how much do you have in school debt? And they said, 19000 They said, I know that seems small here, but it's big there. They said, I want you to know that's paid for. You don't have that hanging over you right now, so you can go. Those are the kind of extravagant acts, not just giving huge amounts of money, because you may not be able to give 19000 but us saying, we're going to help each other get over the wall uh, in all these different areas of our lives so we can be vibrant in our community. I don't want to see another person have to move out of the city because of finances. I want to see us become a community that is financially free and, uh, and um, overjoyed in God. Let's stand.